Welcome to the Threat Show, powered by Fletch. Just move everything to the cloud. Let the experts yeah. handle it. That changes the nature of the problem. It moves from, let me go look for a new threat factor that came out this morning, hunt for a patch, go patch my system. From that dynamic to let me make sure my cloud systems are configured in the right way. Uh, Which is, okay. from a cognitive burden perspective, a much better place to be. Now I'm not worried on a daily basis. Did something come out right now over the long weekend as I was doing a barbecue? Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darian Kinland, VP of Technology at Fletch, and joining me as always each week, Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Darian. We're also joined this week by a special guest, Guru Chahal. Guru is a seasoned investor and founding member of multiple successful startups and is currently partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, one of the leading venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Guru is an alum of Purdue School of Engineering and initially worked on distributed systems and networking and holds several patents in the space. Early on in his career, he was manager and then director of product management at Nuova Systems, which was later acquired by Cisco. Then from 2011 to 2013, he made strategic investments in companies like Zscaler, Avira Systems, and Avi Networks, the latter of which he joined as co-founder and helped grow to serve over 20% of Fortune 50 businesses. During his operational career, he's worked on three product lines as they've gone from inception to over a billion dollar run rate. Guru joined Lightspeed after VMware acquired Avi Networks in 2019. He uses his deep understanding of technology, product expertise, and extensive network to invest in enterprise sectors such as security, DevOps, observability, cloud infrastructure, and application development. Wow, welcome to the show, Guru. Thanks for having me, Darian, and thank you for that very kind introduction. <laughs> You had me a Boilermaker, so. Whoa! <laughs> I bleed Boilermaker. <laughs> I've got the two things in my, in my educational career, and I never speak about the others. I yeah. <laughs> bleed Purdue. Yeah. There you go. It's a great school. Yeah, so we'll be talking with Guru later on about his understanding of the shared responsibility model, how to approach cloud security, as well as practical advice for small, medium-sized businesses who are looking to step up the security game. But first, let's run through the numbers and this week's trending threats. And oh my gosh, what a week it has been. Honestly, I can't believe it. We're now hitting another major high for the calendar year. I mean, we haven't seen this many threats since we first started this show, honestly. It's not surprising that it happened over a major U.S. holiday, Memorial Day weekend. It's one of the best times for attackers to gain access and compromise organizations. Usually teams are understaffed. And frankly, the, the stats don't lie here. I'm, I'm curious, Chris, even though this is probably one of the high points of this year, feels like just a normal cycle and common for every other previous year. We talked about that last week going into long weekend. Then you're absolutely right. A lot of the threats are going against travel and summer type activity organizations. But I also think that we can attribute a lot of this to what's happening all throughout the world with the unrest and the incident in uh, Ukraine and Russia. And it's it's all come together because there's a lot of folks that are mobilizing and the threat groups are growing. And Clearly. There's, there's always this overlay of the macro on top of these numbers. And I do expect this year to be frankly, harder in some yeah. last years because the sad fact is that slowing economy 
actually makes it even more important for the bad guys to continue to attack. Like they're trying to make more money. And on the good guy side, we're cutting budget. We're trying to figure out how to do more with less, which just leads to this really strange dynamic where the threats are growing and our ability to fight them continues to be under pressure in a slowing macro. So I agree with you, Darian. I don't think this is the high for the year. I think this is going to be an interesting year, sadly. Yeah. The bot attacks and the attacks using AI are just growing exponentially too. So yeah. yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how that kind of changes the calculus and dynamics of this game. But looking mm-hmm. more at the details of these numbers, I mean, we had a net gain of 26 new threats, but underneath the hood, we've got tons of activity, lots of threats that actually emerged over the past week, as well as a ton of activity where existing threats have now gone mainstream, meaning more media outlets are starting to cover them with very little actually retiring where we haven't seen any new activity related to these threats in the past month, essentially. And it'll be interesting to see if the number of threats that we start tracking is net new or a resurgent of old threats that have previously gone dormant and now are suddenly reactive again. And this is by far one of the busiest weeks from a defense standpoint. And yet, ironically, most organizations are kind of checked out during this time period. No surprise why. Yeah, no surprise, but yeah. Yeah, barbecue is not going to do itself. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> Somebody's got to sit on that beach and stare at the water. Exactly. Yeah. So let's look at the interesting threats for the week that kind of transpired and highlighted this time period. We have a ton of new vulnerabilities that were discovered in the wild almost for months on end, a bunch of theoretical vulnerabilities that were also discovered as well. And then even ICS-related malware discovered recently, potentially compromising Europe, the Western world, which we'll get into further. But first on our list, a series of researchers discovered a new vulnerability with Barracuda's email security gateway that has been active in the wild with full exploitation since October of last year. This particular vulnerability allowed an attacker to basically just send through a weaponized email attachment as a tar file that once processed by the security gateway would give the attacker full remote code execution, which would allow them to basically use that as a beachhead to compromise other systems inside a company's network infrastructure. We talked about, I think in the past, Chris, of attackers going after perimeter network devices to achieve these sorts of objectives. This is just yet another one. I think the big thing, the big surprise is that it was largely successful and undetected for a total of eight months. That's, I don't know, is that surprising? It's surprising it went undetectable for eight months. I think that the interesting thing is, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot of companies that are, are still using Barracuda email gateways, but it, it just kind of boils back down to hygiene again. I think every time I'm on this show, I don't understand why companies are still hosting their own email. That's that's one. But the other side of that, too, is a lot of companies haven't made the investments in security for their email systems like a proof point. I think that there's also a big hygiene problem there, too. But not detecting for eight months is is pretty it's almost neglect. (laughs) I was trying to come up with such a harsh word, but. Right. And I mean, this is another case of why most organizations should really consider using an email security SaaS service as opposed to using Mm -hmm. on-prem 
infrastructure because managing this, patching it, let alone detecting this sort of activity, that's hard for many organizations. To your early point, Darian, the greatest hits keep coming back. People keep trying the same attack vectors from three months or six yeah. months ago again and again because patching is hard and keeping systems updated is hard. So 100% agree. If you can offload it to the experts, do it. Exactly. Organizations, the email systems being is run by the IT people who know very little bit about security and they patch defensively when something happens as opposed to proactively. Fair enough. Second in our lineup for this week, Zycel reported a vulnerability with their network attached storage devices, specifically allowing a attacker to basically get full code execution. Now, this was a theoretical vulnerability discovered by the vendor internally, which is good. The other thing is that the attacker requires admin privileges ahead of time to be able to successfully compromise this device. However, if an attacker manages to social engineer a legitimate user into giving up their admin credentials, then it's likely they could easily compromise the system. So it's, again, the same type of issue that you see with most network attached storage devices. We've seen, I think, QNAP in the past also compromised by particular threat groups. Thankfully, there is already a patch available for this. The problem, though, is that, again, most small, medium-sized businesses that have a device like this probably doesn't necessarily have a healthy patching schedule for random edge perimeter devices such as these. Bad guys are going after the data, and now the ransomware groups are actually going after storage and the backups and all of that so that they can cause more havoc. Right. Not too terribly surprising, but it goes back to cyber hygiene and patch. And it's right. patched quickly. <laughs> so. Exactly. And yeah. unfortunately, the vendor does not go completely unscathed because there is yet another exploit, this time discovered within their firewall and VPN devices that was actually used in in-the-wild attacks. Specifically, this does not require the attacker to get any sort of admin rights to networking gear. Instead, the attacker just needs to ship a specifically crafted VPN packet through the device, which will then give the attacker full access to the device itself, remote code execution, essentially. And it got so bad that CISAs actually included it in their list of vulnerabilities, key vulnerabilities that need to be patched by federal organizations within, I think, 30, 60, 90 days around yeah. there. This one, thankfully, though, has a patch available since over a month ago. It's just Again, organizations are slow to roll out updates. Fourth on our list is a theoretical vulnerability discovered by Microsoft against the Mac OS system. Specifically, they dubbed it Migraine, which allows an attacker to essentially deploy undeletable malware on the protected portion of Mac OS file systems, supposedly this is the portion of the file system that you can't easily alter or destroy or manipulate as a normal user, even with admin rights, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that Microsoft researchers found this is definitely causing a bit of a migraine for security vendors because it's only a matter of time before attackers start to leverage this vulnerability for nefarious purposes. Thankfully, though, there are patches available as of about a week ago, multiple weeks ago at this point, across Ventura, Monterey, and Big Sur. 
you know, it's interesting with Mac OS now, they're kind of coming up to Patch Tuesday every Tuesday now. So it used to be just Microsoft. Most people assume that's because Mac OS is more secure. And the reality yeah. was it was just not worth an attacker's time to go after a tiny, tiny install base. And as that changes, we're going to see just more and more of this and just goes on to show how it's not necessarily about which endpoint technology or operating system or device you're using. It's more about just ensuring coverage and good hygiene and just having solid programs to go and just patch these things as they come out. Absolutely. And encouraging healthy hygiene for all of your users, regardless of what operating system, is always a good idea for a variety of reasons. Fifth on our list is actually a new vulnerability discovered with GitLab. Specifically, if you're hosting GitLab and rolling your own, you definitely want to upgrade very quickly because this particular vulnerability allows an attacker to access basically any files in a public project, as long as the attachments were nested within at least five groups, which is kind of arbitrary. But the challenge here is that if you have any files nested within your repos and you have any sort of access control on them, this is a way to bypass that access control. Thankfully, there is a patch available and most organizations who are using any sort of version control system like GitLab probably are using the cloud service, in which case they're already protected. But for those organizations that again decided to roll their own, they need to deploy this pretty quickly. This is a big area that we're seeing right now. We're getting a lot of push from our enterprise DevOps clients because, you know, the CISO, the security people and the, and the DevOps teams are being forced. Most CISOs are kicking their feet and being drugged to be able to have to support DevOps now. So we're seeing just this huge emergence of companies popping up that are, that are addressing situations like this to effectively make the software supply chain more secure. But we're going to see more and more of these types of vulnerabilities and these types of weaknesses as people start using open source even more. I 100% I agree, Chris. We saw this with SolarFlare. Yeah. We saw this with Log4j. And more recently, we're seeing regulation come from the federal government as well, which I think will just further increase the importance of making sure your software supply chain is really, really secure. You know what's going in. You know the build systems like GitLab and others that you're using are secure. And there's no sort of malware that accidentally makes it through your pipeline all the way into your production systems. We expect certainly on the, on the venture capital side, we're seeing just a ton of really interesting innovation in the space. I expect this is going to be a very large market over the next five to 10 years, just software yeah. supply security. Yeah, because it goes all the way from the cloud all the way down to the desktop. You know, I think that another thing that a lot of companies need to do, especially in the software supply chain, is, is discovery and inventory of what they've got. And then, then kind of going in and looking in there, it's effectively building the, the software build materials, the SBOM is what they call it. And as the government mandated SBOMs, it's going to get pushed out through the public sector and then into the private sector. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of a lot of good companies that are popping up to, to solve this, this very specific problem, guys like Aqua and Wiz and some of those other guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So last on our list for today, there was actually a new type of ICS-related malware discovered by Mandiant that's going after electrical transmission and distribution operations in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. They've dubbed it Cosmic Energy, and it has similar functionality to the Indestroyer or Indestroyer version 2 malware variants. However, it's also designed to disrupt remote terminal units that ultimately deliver power to entire infrastructures in countries, cities, and municipalities. 
in this particular case, the two types of malware under the umbrella of cosmic energy kind of work together. You have one that's deployed on a compromised, usually Windows host, that's ultimately designed to control a Microsoft SQL Server, which ultimately talks to the remote terminal units. And in this case, PyHop is the malware that ultimately deploys another type of malware called Lightwork, which gets run on the SQL Server to basically run scheduled jobs, which turn off the equipment or on and off the equipment rapidly to destroy the equipment ultimately. This is not the first of its kind. We've seen other evidence of this in the past, but if you are in the industrial control industry effectively, one of the challenges you have when dealing with this type of malware is obviously you wanna maintain decent network segmentation of any sort of ICS equipment. Unfortunately, the biggest priority is not necessarily security, but rather availability. <laughs> so mm -hmm. by nature, this sort of equipment does not necessarily get patched regularly because they don't want to risk the possibility of a patch or update causing an outage legitimately. But this type of malware has in the past managed to infect these systems, in which case a lot of operators are having to think twice about, okay, what's the best way to defend against this beyond just network isolation? I'm curious your thoughts here, Chris. We've seen such a huge increase in critical infrastructure attacks. And I think that we as an industry are ill-equipped to secure OT devices right now, largely because they speak a different language. They're run by different people. You know, security people typically don't understand what goes into patching and updating, keeping, keeping an OT device. Plus the other side of it too, is that people would put these devices out in the wild just because they were remote, made them relatively secure. And now that's not the case anymore. We're seeing more and more of these. And I think, as, like I said earlier, as the war goes on and there's a lot more uncertainty in the world, grid attacks are obviously, if you just watch the news, they're talking about, you know, they're coming. And so this is not a, not a surprise. It's certainly not a red herring. It's interesting because, of course, this has been attributed possibly to Russia as well yeah. and related to the war, the ongoing war. What's interesting for the larger picture is how these sorts of developments, these sorts of attacks, exploits, vulnerabilities, serve as kind of inspiration for other threat groups who are going after a much larger target, could potentially reuse these same methodologies to potentially hold organizations data for ransom or threaten disruption, which then ultimately bleeds over into other countries as well. If you can disrupt their critical infrastructure, you can dis disrupt a country. So, um. yeah. Well, that covers our threats for the week. So, for this part of our conversation, let's talk more with Guru, our guest speaker today. So, Guru, from your perspective, we covered a number of different threats, some of which could be easily thwarted by just organizations adopting services in the cloud. But one of the challenges is how organizations, both big and small, leverage these SaaS products securely. I'm curious, from your perspective, how do the challenges and approaches to cloud security differ if you're in a small, medium-sized business versus a large enterprise? Thanks, Aaron. For This is a space we've been thinking about quite a bit, because if you think about these sophistication of some of the attack vectors, as that continues to increase, there's certainly sophistication on the enterprise side at the high end to fight those attack vectors. But the same attack vectors eventually 
are going to come down into mid-market and into SMB. And there, we simply don't have enough manpower to be able to go out and have every SMB doesn't have access to a security analyst. So how do you create technology that can help thwart some of these attack vectors, especially around phishing, around cloud security, and so on? Now, the good news is, just like the discussion we had earlier, there's a set of technologies that even SMBs had to install on-premises. You would literally walk into your doctor or dentist's clinic and walk to a closet in the back and open it up, and there'd be a huge server running their software. Yeah which would scare the living bejesus out of you because your doctor just does not have the expertise to keep it secure. And so yeah. historically, we've just kept it, you know, air gap and basic hygiene, but God knows a vast majority of them probably don't patch all of that software, whether it's email servers or their medical systems on time. And so step one is just move everything to the cloud. Let the experts yeah. handle it. So that changes the nature of the problem, it moves from, let me go look for a new threat factor that came out this morning, hunt for a patch, go patch my system. From that dynamic to let me make sure my cloud systems are configured in the right way. Uh, right? Which is, okay. From a cognitive burden perspective, a much better place to be. Now I'm not worried on a daily basis. Did something come out right now over the long weekend as I was doing a barbecue to, I just installed this new piece of software or I just hired Guru into my practice. Is the software configured the right way with the right security posture? And does Guru have only the permissions he needs to be successful in my practice? Nothing more, nothing less, right? So that, that's not something you think about daily. That's something you have to think about every once in a while. And we, you know, we think of this as security posture management. And in cloud, having CSPM or cloud security posture management software is increasingly non-negotiable. Whether customers are doing their own software development on AWS, or they're simply using a cloud SaaS solution, having security software that can help them configure those places, AWS, or the SaaS solution they're using, even if it's a cloud-hosted email or something like that, having software that helps you configure it in the most secure way possible is very, very important. It is because, in my mind, at the SMB level, the pillars have been EDR, make sure you've got right. something on your clients. It's been email security, make sure you don't get fished, although that's, uh, yes. that's, that's hard. <laughs> Easier said right. than done. Easier said than done. And now increasingly, the last pillar is becoming, make sure you just configured things the right way, right? So that's everything from security posture management to SaaS security posture management, cloud security posture management. That's where we're really, really focused. And some of our companies are helping SMBs and mid-market really address that. That's interesting. I think that touches on the concept of a shared responsibility model when it comes yeah. to managing the security of your infrastructure. It's an interesting dynamic because for cloud services themselves, they try to cater to enterprises, mid-market, even small organizations. And a lot of times it can be quite daunting to configure and set up a cloud service securely just because there's so many different knobs and levers and bells and whistles on some of these cloud services where all that stuff was really designed to cater to a large scale enterprise, right? That's why they yeah. did it. But as a operator in a small, medium-sized business, and you look at some of these different features, you're like, 
well, do I even care about this thing? What's the default? What's the best way to just turn this off or not use this because it's frankly a distraction can be quite daunting. And hence the whole market of cloud security posture management is such a big deal now. You know, Darian, we we focus on three things right now where we are enabling founders create great technology to help with this, especially in the SMB and mid-market construct. The first one is entitlements which is this mm-hmm. notion of who has access to what. Did you configure your systems in the right way so that people only have access to what they need to do their job, nothing more, nothing less. And ideally, even that is just in time, just when Guru needs it, because God knows I don't need to touch every system in, in an SMB every day. I probably have to do it every once in a while. So by default, it should be zero trust and as tight as possible. So entitlement management is one area we're focused on. The other one is, of course, cloud security posture management. And so this is hygiene. Let's just make sure we are as secure as possible. But the beautiful thing about cybersecurity business is it's the only IT business where you have an active adversary on the other side, (laughs) which means the three of us will always have a job because the bad guys, they never stop. And so the good guys can't afford to stop. And so we always have to bring newer technologies to the market. And so in spite of this really good hygiene, you have great security posture management. You have great sort of entitlement management. Bad guys are going to get through every once in a while. And so the third area that we're continuing to invest in is how do we build software? Instead of requesting an SMB to go hire a security analyst, how do we build software that can become your virtual security analyst? Now, they're never going to be as sophisticated as a human, certainly not with the tech that we have today, but they can do a lot of the busy work on a day-to-day basis. And we call this autonomous security operations. And so we have a set of companies now that are using machine learning and artificial intelligence to do basic blocking and tacking on a daily basis. When an email shows up and Proofpoint or another security system is like, wait a minute, this looks like phishing. There's a piece of software that can look at that, look at the context, look at what's going on in your business and say, yeah, this does look like phishing or no, 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 this looks like it's pretty kosher. And let me send to a human for a quick check on that, but outside of that, it's not high risk. So this autonomous SOC or security operations center, this is an area we're focused on quite a bit as well, just to take that barrage of alerts that tend to start to come back from security systems, just to tamper those down a little bit. So, so at TAG, we, we track about 4,500 different cybersecurity companies, and we probably interact with about 800 of them a year. And inevitably, there are probably four to five briefings that we do a week with somebody who is dealing with cloud security and with a company that's dealing with it. This week, I've had four already, and I have two more. And some of them are doing differently. Like you said, the, the autonomous SOC then there's also the well, CSPM has really become a huge area. There's some companies that we see that just have crazy valuations and lots of money, but they just can't tell their story well. But then there's other ones that are just amazing. And it's two guys in a cat in a garage, and they're really doing some really innovative things. And so there's so much innovation in the CSPM. And I hate using Gartner terms, but CSPM is really one of the biggest growing areas. That and API security are the two areas that we're really seeing a lot of growth. Yeah, I agree with that. I have seen cloud security, so CSPM, where as you as you both know, we're investors in companies like Wiz, is just just phenomenal growth in that space and those companies. We're investors in API security. We have been for about three or four years, where our core belief is more of software will just talk to other software. 
That's just the reality, right? It used to be you deploy an application, you access the application. Software always for a human. That world was gone 10 years ago. Now 80 to 90% of software is just talking to each other, right? Over APIs. And so who's securing those APIs? Firewalls don't cover that. And yeah. so we've been investors in API security in a company that I'm really proud of called No Name Security for a while, the fastest growing API security solution. That's another really, really important pillar in security. And the third one, as we spoke about, is an autonomous SOC, where we're investors in Radiant Security, which is helping SMBs and mid-market IT operations just build a virtual security analyst that can help with the initial triage for stuff coming along. But I, I agree with you, Chris. There's just a lot of innovation, but it is very important for customers to look past just the marketing and really yeah. understand where the core innovation is. It's less about the size of the company or how much money they've raised, but it's more about really what is the work that you can help me get done. And yeah. thanks to AI, these companies are looking much smaller than they used to. You know, you can do just so much more with less. So sometimes you're right, this two guys in a garage kind of company can offer a better solution than you know, a company that might have been, that is in the public markets is a 20, 30, $40 billion company. One kind of proof point that we were just talking about and specific to Wiz, a lot of the CISOs that we deal with, because that's most of our business is dealing with enterprise CISOs. A lot of them, you know, they're obviously getting their budgets cut, but the one thing that they're carving out inevitably is Wiz. Wow. You know, they'll cut other things in their budget, but they want to, they want to put in, you know, salts and no name and Wiz, kind of the big up and comers, Aqua is another one, depending on the organization. So we're seeing that, but they're looking at very specific solutions to put in and they're all specifically around cloud. And how do I leverage that better? Because it also deals with third party. Third party risk management is another area where if you mess that up, you're going to lose your job. And some of these solutions do better than others there, but it completely validates exactly what you just said. And yeah, you know, we were kind of questionable about Wiz when they first launched, but now we're we're going to take the blue pill. I think maybe not. We're getting close to. You know, that, yeah. is, I, I'll, I'll tell you a short story. My first startup that Cisco had acquired was building private clouds, and yeah. several years in, it was a very large business, you know, multi-billion-dollar business. I was out in the Midwest talking to sysadmins. It's like, you know, how are you feeling about this? And this is ten years ago. Ten years ago, they're like, well, we're not going to buy this private cloud anymore. And I was like, why? I was like, because we're, we're not going to deploy Microsoft Exchange. We're just going to the hosted solution. We're just going to Office 365 or Gmail. And for the rest, we're just going to go to the public cloud. And so cloud has become, from that time, the exception to now the default. Now, if I want to go buy a server and put it in my data center, I have to explain to my CFO exactly why I'm doing that. And as that happens, just like firewalls and VPNs were unquestionably, like nobody said, yeah, we're gonna put up a data center, but why are you buying a firewall or a VPN? Like that was not even, it was, you're gonna have walls, you're gonna have cooling, you're gonna have heating and electricity, and you're gonna have a firewall and a VPN. And just in that right. same way, because cloud has become the default, having a CSPM is no longer an option, right? If you're gonna be in the cloud, you're gonna have a CSPM. Otherwise, what are you even doing? You know, that's what's exciting. That's why these businesses are growing so fast. And I love hearing that, Chris, that even in a slowing macro, even under budgetary pressure, CISOs are identifying that this is a core pillar of my strategies. This is not an area we're going to pinch on. Yeah, there's a little bit of bandwagoning going on with amongst the CISO community with Wiz. 
Yeah. But for all intents and purposes, that they do a good job of telling telling the story. Mm-hmm. And and the other side of that, and I say this every time, every show, Darian, is go get a hosted exchange or use Google. I mean, you just have to look at look what happened to Rackspace with their hosted exchange solutions. And they're still recovering from that. And so and they had, you know, a lot of customers, you know, four, four or five hundred customers that had no email for five, six days. It's unacceptable. It's just not worth it, right? I mean, look, it's not worth it. the first CVE we went over, okay? Yeah. You want to run your own email gateway. Great. So you put up an email gateway. Now the damn thing gets hacked. Guess what's the first thing a hacker does? I'm on your email gateway. I'm watching both of you talk to each other. The last mm-hmm. communication was Chris saying, hey, man, here's the account number to wire that. And th- right then, I can now type an email, ask Chris, send it to Darian. You have no way of telling that's what happened and say, oh, sorry, there was a typo. I copy pasted the wrong account number. Here's the actual account number. And Darian, of course, is like, oh, thanks, Chris. And wires $1,000 out. You just why? It is unnecessary risk. And so email gateways, frankly, I just it just makes no sense to me. It's such, and phishing is 80% of the attack vectors have involved some sort of phishing. And yeah. so at least basic hygiene, move it out to the vendor and just focus on phishing, on identifying really sophisticated social attacks rather than worrying about the baseline is my email gateway patched. Right. That makes sense. So Guru, from your perspective, looking at a crystal ball three to five years out, I'm curious, what are some skills or knowledge areas that you think are going to be absolutely essential for security operators to start to be familiar with, get experience with, in order to just, now it's the new normal, just as what you've described, not just for enterprises, but for small and medium-sized businesses as well. My advice to everyone right now is go and start playing around with ChatGPT, understand where AI is headed. Your Mm -hmm. kids are doing it, you should do it too. Because, look, for the last, frankly, as long as I've been in cybersecurity, but certainly in the last five to 10 years, I have never seen an attack vector that is more prevalent and more effective than phishing and just social engineering. Right. Now, think about what these attack vectors do. They're very sort of language-oriented. People are sending you emails or maybe a physical piece of mail and you open it. It's like, wow, this looks pretty legit. Darian has just sent me a letter. Kind of weird, but. Great. AI helps you do this more by several orders of magnitude. So I think the sophistication of attacks that is coming over the next five years is going to be just incredible, especially in social engineering and phishing attacks. And the more you play around with this technology right now, the more familiar you're going to be with its capabilities and the more ready you'll be with evaluating the vendors that you need to bring in to help fight these kind of attack vectors. Otherwise, you know, we've seen this in cybersecurity forever. Marketing is always several steps ahead of where the actual product is. And we have to do a ton of work in cutting through that noise and understanding what the product is capable of doing today. And again, the more familiar you are with the capabilities of AI, the easier it'll be for your teams and yourself to really understand what this product can and cannot do. How is AI changing the way that you invest in companies? And I know that you have to leverage it, but I've had several conversations with with VCs talking about this. And AI has changed the way a lot of these folks have invested because they can do a lot more, much quicker. The investments are looking to get smaller. And I don't know how that's affecting your firm, but how, how is AI changing that? 
It's a great question and it's multifaceted. So let me cover sort of the three big ways in which it's changing. The first way is just think of it as just triage, which is, okay, AI has taken a huge leap in the last six to 12 months. Let's look at our existing, Lightspeed is a global firm. We manage some, somewhere between 25 to $30 billion in assets today. We raised $7 billion last year for our global investments. We have several hundred, probably around three or 400 active companies. So look at the Look at the, the surface area of our existing investments. Forget about just the news. So step one is AI is out. I've got 400 companies I've worked with. What is the impact on these companies, either in terms of new competition that's going to come in or how their products need to evolve, right? So they don't get negatively impacted by it. So that's sort of one work stream. A second work stream is what does... AI tooling enable our next generation of investments to do. And so there, your point is valid, Chris, the efficiency of AI tooling, whether that's Copilot in GitHub and your ability to do more as a software engineer, whether that's copy.ai or jasper.ai for your marketing organizations and helping them, what they would have done with 10 people, helping them do with four. So just increasing efficiency. The interesting thing, Chris, is it's not necessarily reducing the amount of dollars that we're investing into these companies, they're just able to run many, many more experiments to get to product market fit a lot earlier. And so the average seed investment that we're doing perhaps a year or two ago was still four, five, six million dollars. It's still four, five, six million dollars. And these teams are just able to do a lot more, run a lot more experiments in parallel. And so that when they have product market fit, then they're able to quickly raise capital and grow much faster. So what you're going to see, I suspect is, over the next few years, the pace at which a company goes from zero to $10 million in business or $50 million, $100 million will continue to increase because they're just able to do a lot more, much, much quicker. So that's sort of the second piece. And the third piece is just native to AI itself, which is what are capabilities that AI is able to do and areas we should be investing in. So for instance, does AI now enable you to do automation for some basic tasks that we do over and over again that was just not doable till a year ago. And so those net new investment opportunities for us. So those are probably the three. Look at our existing portfolio, make sure nobody gets disrupted. <laughs> Look at the next generation of companies that are coming up and make sure they're hyper-efficient and they can run five, six, seven experiments at the same time to be successful and look at brand new opportunities from a technology perspective that are now open for us to invest in. That's pretty cool. It's interesting. I was, we're doing a lot of work in quantum right now, and I, I suspect you're probably starting to explore that that world as well. But we're yeah. I heard this really interesting statistic: is a typical attack will take three weeks to detect, just traditional using AI. It's three days, and then you've got quantum, which is we're so far behind from a defensive perspective. But these quantum attacks are ongoing and instantaneous, and you you can't detect them. So we're kind of getting into some, some scary, scary waters. And so we're starting to see HPC companies, you know, high-performance computing companies kind of try to bridge that gap. The worst thing about these quantum attacks is you could be recording this secure communication, let's say, for years, and one day use quantum to crack the encryption keys and just yeah. everything, <laughs> looking back yeah. five, 10 or 20 years, whatever you recorded is now accessible to you. So getting into good quantum hygiene at a minimum using mm -hmm. encryption algorithms that are quantum resistant, for instance, is really important. And I think it's gonna be a big area of focus. Back to your question, Darian, it's gonna be a big area of focus over the next few years, just understanding this technology that is coming down. Quantum is coming, it's gonna happen. 
It's going to have impact on cryptography at a minimum. And so it's important to educate yourself and start thinking about, okay, what is basic hygiene I should be doing today so that if an attacker is able to even record encrypted communication today, that doesn't put me in a really difficult position a few years down the line when they have access to quantum hardware that they can use to crack those keys and just decrypt that entire stream that they recorded. The days of making money in encryption are coming. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. <laughs> that is true. Well, this this dovetails nicely with a conversation we had in previous episodes where we talked about like, eventually there's going to be a time where suddenly the data that a company is collecting is not just valuable, but it can potentially be a liability if they hold on to it for too long, right? And your point, if there is a quantum attack that allows an adversary to potentially decrypt data that you've been amassing for 5, 10, 15, 50 years, that represents a huge risk. And so organizations might decide, you know what, rather than retaining this for 90 years or 50 years, let's just retain it for two years. And that way it kind of reduces our overall exposure or risk. I think, Darren, what's going to happen, look, people are always going to be hesitant to throw away data because on the flip right. side, you can use that historical data to train your AI models to run your business right. better. So this, I mean, data has super valuable. Yes, yes, it is. To our conversation in other aspects of IT is folks will offload the storage of that data, the backup, the archival to experts who can then pick the right kind of encryption algorithms and cryptography and schemes to make it more resilient, even in the face of new attack vectors like quantum that might be coming. I mean, we are investors, you know, 10 years ago, we invested in a company called Rubrik, which got started with a very simple, the world's easiest to do backup and archival. You know what's their fastest growing business today? Cybersecurity, cybersecurity mm -hmm. and ransomware. Someone attacks your infrastructure, encrypts everything, you press a button on rubric, boom, you're back to running it because they've got an active backup of your environment. They're like, oh, somebody encrypted your stuff? Don't worry about it. There you yeah. go, you're good. And my point with that conversation is, look, offloading the retention of data to an expert really helps, not just in sort of the near-term attack factors like ransomware and others, but also I believe in sort of this long-term decision around how should we store this data in a way so that it's just much more resilient in the face of emerging factors. The average SMB, the average mid-market enterprise, frankly, even high-end enterprises simply don't have the expertise to be thinking about this on a daily basis. Like that's why, that's why they reach out to folks like Chris, right? They don't have the time, they're running their business. Who in the organization is gonna sit up is like, let me think about quantum today. They don't, they don't have time. Nobody has the time or the budget to do that. Exactly. Well. Thank you both, gentlemen. This has been an absolute pleasure. We'll have to leave it there for now. And for our listeners at home, please join us next week for the Threat Show again, where we'll cover next week's trending threats. And if you have any questions about what was covered in this show or have other ideas for future shows, please DM us at The Threat Show. Thanks again. Thank Thanks, you. Larry. Thanks, Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats. 